0: You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are continuing in our study of this book. And we're going to be finishing up next week. Hallelujah. It's been a while. And uh, as you know, one of the main reasons, if if you've been along for the study, is that Peter's writing this book to prepare these churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, for persecution and for the suffering that was going to come. And it already started, but it was going to get much worse, and history uh, certainly tells us that. And in those difficult times, there would be two qualities. That uh, would be absolutely essential for the church to thrive. Peter talks about these two qualities all the way through this letter, the first one being humility, the second one being boldness. Humility, humility towards God and towards one another, and boldness, or a bold resistance against evil. And as Peter concludes the letter, he comes back to these two themes one more time. The second half of chapter five is about the boldness that is needed to resist the devil and to stand firm in the faith. And we'll finish up that again next week. The first half of chapter five is about the humility that's needed by the church to thrive. Uh, The humility that's needed not only by those who lead, but also by those that are led. In verses one through four, we see the humility needed by those who lead called elders. And then in verses five through seven, we see the humility that is needed among those who are led. And so let's read it together, beginning in verse 1, I'm reading from the NIV version. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble." Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, and cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning. Minister it to our hearts, our minds, and our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now again, in these first four verses, Peter is addressing the elders in the various churches throughout Asia Minor. And it might be helpful to know before we go any further that the office of an elder is the same as that of a shepherd, is the same as that of a pastor, is the same as that of an overseer. All those terms in the New Testament are synonymous terms. And we see that in verse two, or verse one and two, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. The word shepherd, is from the Greek word poimen, which is also translated pastors in Ephesians 4. A familiar verse of Scripture says, When Jesus is set it up on high, He gave gifts to men. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And that word there is poimen. That's the same word translated shepherds here in verse 2 of 1 Peter 5. And then Peter says that these shepherd elders are to watch over um, the flock. And that word watch over or watching over is from the Greek word episkopos. It's where we get Episcopalian from. It's a word that means to oversee. In fact, the Old New International Version uh, translated it that way, serving as overseers. And so we see here that an elder is a shepherd is a pastor, is an overseer. I'll use all those terms interchangeably because the New Testament uses all of those terms interchangeably also. But I wanna focus on the, uh, the word elder. I think there's something here that's important to, to realize about it. It comes from the Old Testament, whereas a, a nation, Israel, was in part led by appointed elders who were uh, mature men, full of wisdom, had godly character, and a good reputation. We see it officially right after the Exodus, where Moses appoints 70 of these elders to help him govern and serve Israel. The same pattern continued uh, all the way throughout Israel's history, all the way to the leaders of the synagogues in Jesus' day. And since the early church was so heavily influenced by Hebrew culture, um, the early New Testament followed that same pattern. When Paul would go into a region and, and, and plant a church, he would appoint elders to oversee it. And those church elders, like the synagogue elders or like the elders in Moses' day, were mature men with wisdom, good character, a godly character, and a godly reputation, but by the, near, uh, by the end of Paul's ministry, and about the time, too, that Peter is writing this letter, the role of an elder progressed from an appointed position of leadership in the church to a specific calling or gifting of God. That's why Ephesians 4 says, Jesus gave gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, so it's not no longer just an appointed position, it is a gifting of God. And that's why in Paul's last letters, which are called the, um, the pastoral letters, we see the Holy Spirit giving a formalized list of qualifications for elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers. And so it is to this group of people, this eldership, this pastor that Peter is writing to here in this letter. And the instruction, interesting, is not sent directly to the pastors. It's sent to the church. It's sent to everybody. The letter is for everybody. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit deemed it necessary and profitable that the whole church understand what a pastor is called to do and how then to respond to pastoral ministry in a local church. He intends for the whole church to know about it. He speaks here of the calling the manner of serving and the reward of shepherds and overarching all of the instruction that peter gives here about pastors and two pastors is the need to be humble this is one of the main themes of the book and the main themes of this last chapter and is the main theme of this passage Initially, kind of looks like, well, here's some instructions about elders, but really overarching all of that, if you look at these seven verses in context, the emphasis here is on humility. Now, I know it doesn't jump right out at you in the first four verses like it does in the last three. In the last three verses, humility is mentioned three times. But you see it here if you look closely, because these qualities that are described about a shepherd, the qualities that are needed by a shepherd, have one thing in common, and that is, is they all require humility to function in. And that is a humility also that Peter reveals just in the opening line of this chapter. Peter refers to himself here as a witness of Christ's sufferings, of which there are many. But then he doesn't refer to himself as an apostle or one of the twelve. So he says, I was a witness of Christ's sufferings, as were many. But he doesn't pull out the apostle card here. He doesn't make his appeal based upon his apostleship. He doesn't say, I was one of the 12. I walked with him. I knew him. You should listen to me. He doesn't do that. He appeals what? As a fellow elder. In other words, what he says to the church, and specifically to the elders in Asia Minor, is this. I just want to talk to you for a moment, pastor to Pastor. From one shepherd's heart to your shepherd heart. You know, Peter wasn't always that humble, was he? I mean, you read through the Gospels, and this guy was a bit overconfident from time to time, to say the least, right? But to, I see all that changing one day in that unforgettable moment in the Sea of Galilee. I think his life changed there. It was following the resurrection, and Peter was pretty overcome by the fact that he had denied the Lord three times. And John 21 tells a story of him returning back to the profession of fishing. He said, I am going fishing. And seven of the others said, we'll go with you. And what he said there is, I am returning into the state of being a fisherman, literally. He was leaving his apostolic ministry and going back to fishing. So early in the morning, and I, yeah, I think he was, he was just overcome. He had already seen the Lord. The Lord had already appeared to him, but he just could not get over it his failure. And so early in the morning Jesus appeared to the disciples who hadn't caught any fish after fishing all night long. This is a common story with these guys. Now unrecognizable from the shore, they didn't know who he was, Jesus called out for them to throw their net on the right side. Now if you're a fisherman you go, what difference does that make? The boat's only eight feet, ten feet wide. But they do it. And what happens? miraculous catch of fish all of a sudden John goes that's the Lord Peter jumps in the water swims to shore they all bring the fish the boat in and they have a meal together along the seashore and together Jesus speaks to them but not just to them specifically to Peter in front of them he actually restores Peter to his apostolic office three times Jesus said Peter do you love me three times each time Peter basically says yes Lord you know I love you and then each time in essence Jesus says then feed my sheep feed my lambs now why did Jesus restore Peter this way I suppose the three do you love me were for the three denials I can't imagine that being for any other reason but we don't know for sure But I think one thing that we do know for sure is this, is what Jesus is saying here, is that a pastor can only care for the flock as much as he loves Jesus. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And so the most important thing that a pastor can do, or anyone who serves in the local church, the most important thing they can do for the flock, to serve the flock, is to genuinely and deeply love the Lord with the humility that comes from hearing Jesus say to them, do you love me? Then keep on feeding my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Then keep on feeding, keep on tending, keep on overseeing my sheep. Now, what Peter does is he takes that moment and essentially, you know, has a little mini pastor's conference in the first few verses of this chapter. He says the same thing to these pastors in Asia Minor. He says this, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. In essence, it's a job description. Shepherd and watch over. Again, the word shepherd is from the Greek word, and literally this word, the word it comes from, its very basic meaning is feed. Feed. In fact, that's the way the King James translation translates this verse. Feed God's flock. Because the primary job of a shepherd, pastor, overseer, is to feed the flock of God that is under your care. But not only feed them, and that's what Jesus said to Peter on the Sea of Galilee too. He turns right around and says, then feed the sheep. But also, not just feed the flock, Peter says, watch over the flock. Like an ancient shepherd was to lead the sheep to the green pastures. The primary calling of a pastor is to feed the flock the Word of God. And just like the ancient shepherd would protect the sheep from the dangers of wolves, the calling of a pastor is to feed the sheep so well that they can easily detect wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul gives the same exact job description to the pastors of Ephesus over in Acts chapter 20. He says to them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Peter says, be shepherds of, notice this, God's flock. Paul says, be shepherds over the church belonging to God. Both say to shepherds, the sheep aren't yours. You know, sometimes when people refer to members of a church, they refer to them as being the pastor's flock. No, 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 no. You're God's flock. You belong to the great shepherd. I am just a sheep who's been called to under-shepherd serving the great shepherd. It's kind of a weird position to be in, by the way. Peter says the pastor is one who is among the flock, but also over the flock. Among and yet over. That's what I mean weird. It's like being two things at once. Some people emphasize the among the flock relationship But fail to recognize the authority of the shepherd to oversee the flock, and others seem to emphasize the -the over-the-flock relationship and put the pastor on a pedestal as some kind of super-Christian. Both of those are extreme, and they're wrong. But to effectively lead, a pastor has to be both among, to know the flock, and also over the flock to, to lead them and to teach them to teach them what they need to hear from God's Word without fear of losing a relationship. Always, always, always remembering that flock is God's. And a pastor will one day give an account to God, how did you take care of my sheep? And the reason that you're God's flock is that He purchased you. He purchased you at an infinite cost to himself. Paul says, "You be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood, at an infinite cost to himself." Jesus redeemed you from sin through the offering of his blood on the cross. The price he paid for you reflects how important you are to him. That price says something. That price, that price affects you when you think about it. What more could he have given? what greater price could he have paid? And what does that tell you about how he feels about you? It affects you, doesn't it? I mean, that blood will never let you feel unloved. That sacrifice is too great to say, I am not loved by the Lord. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But you know, that price he paid for you also affects me. That That blood won't allow me to give you leftovers. I mean, you don't give that kind of sacrifice your second best as a shepherd. See, that blood speaks to you as a pastor. That that sacrifice compels you to always do the best that you can to feed the flock. And that price also makes me sometimes a bit protective too. And occasionally, not as enthusiastic about the latest Christian book you are reading or the popular teacher that everyone is listening to now. I know sometimes that irritates you. That's okay. But what I found is sometimes people aren't as, as discerning about the finer points of doctrine as, as, that's important. Some Christians I think, sometimes think they have a double PhD in theology. They don't see the yeast of error hidden within a normal lump of dough. That looks normal to me, but they don't see it. It's small. But see, yeast expands. They don't see the destruction that can come from, from that. They don't see the damage it can do. Well, it's on Christian TV, so it must be good, Right? That's almost like saying, well, it's on the Internet. It must be right. Well, they're a popular author, and their books just sell in the the hundreds of thousands. It's got to be good, right? That doesn't mean that's right. I mean, there has never been an error that has not first looked good. Just ask Eve. She saw that it was good, and it really wasn't. That's why Paul told the Ephesian pastors here, don't don't just feed the flock of God. He said, protect them too. He says in verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. So a pastor is to feed and watch over. The flock. Now, the rest of verse 2 and 3 are basically about the manner that a pastor is to do that. Peter tells us how by drawing three contrasts between the way a pastor should pastor and the way a pastor should not. He says here again, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them. Not… Here, here's the three, the three comparisons. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So first, he says, serve willingly, not because you must. And because you must implies that perhaps there's a bit of false motive there. There's some compulsion there. There's a pressure. If you felt pressure by other people to to shepherd and you did it because of that, you entered the ministry because of that, you would eventually serve grudgingly because the weight is too heavy without the grace of God's calling if you felt guilty for not stepping up and meeting a need of a group of people gathered together, and so you took that on to shepherd those people, you would eventually serve unwillingly without the grace of that calling. Both peer pressure and guilt are false motives. But I think the, the false motive that Peter is getting at here is fear. Because if you think about their scenario at this point in history for the church in Asia Minor, someone considering you know, God's call to shepherd a flock would probably think twice about that because they would see on the horizon there was a great deal of suffering that was coming, and there was. And they would also realize that the spiritual leaders, the shepherds, would be the primary target of this persecution. And so they didn't quickly rush into ministry. They needed to be willing, though, to pay whatever price they would have to pay. And the same would be true today in countries where Conversion to Christianity is illegal and baptism gets you imprisoned. There is, that's where willingness really becomes an issue. But the shepherd, you not only need to be willing to serve, you also have to be eager. Peter says, serve eagerly, not for dishonest gain. Now, when a church is financially able, the New Testament says that a pastor should be remunerated the church is too small and the pastor has to work an outside job to support his family, that's fine. But as soon as that church can afford to pay him, it should. Which means as soon as the church can afford to pay him, he should leave what he's doing to give all of his attention to the flock. It's not something God ever intended to be done part-time. When you're able to, he wants shepherds to give everything they have Devote all of their time and energy into feeding and preparing to feed the flock. But making money or financial gain must never ever be the main motive, Peter says, for pastoring. Certainly pastors need a paycheck, no doubt, but that's not to be the reason. Their motive is to be a love that is eager to serve the Lord and to serve the church. If any amount of gain or money becomes the chief motive... Peter says here it becomes dishonest gain, dishonorable gain. It's dishonest because serving the Lord for any reason, for gaining money or for any other earthly reason is absolutely contradictory to the gospel and it devalues Jesus. It makes Jesus into a commodity. The New Living Translation broadens this warning by saying, care for the flock not for what you can get out of it. Not money, not anything else, not recognition, not power, not self-importance, not a title, nothing else. Sometimes people are in ministry today because they want to be the center of attention. They want the praise of man. They want the title. They need that. Their soul needs that approval. That's the wrong reason to be in ministry. You shepherd God's flock because you are eager to serve the Lord, not gain the approval of man or to get a title on your door. Jesus, look, Jesus is so glorious and he is so valuable that every one of us in this room should be willing to do whatever he calls us to do, no matter what it costs us. He is the hidden treasure in the field. He is the pearl of great price. The third thing that Peter says here is that a shepherd should lead as an example, not as one lording over. This, of course, reminds me right away of Jesus' words to the disciples over in Mark 10. When they asked him, you know, and they were kind of thinking about position here, They were asking him about, now who is going to be great in your coming kingdom? And he says in verse 42, well, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all, for even, 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 the most exalted person in the universe, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. So faithful, caring shepherds don't lord it over others. They serve. They serve those under their care. And that's becoming actually quite quite a bit of a problem for the modern church. It wasn't this way a few decades ago, but recently, over the last few years, this has become quite a problem, especially for for larger churches. And it happened again this last week at a, uh, a megachurch in Tennessee where they had to set a pastor down for lording over. The press release said that he created a toxic and abusive work environment, manipulated facts to support a certain agenda, and used social media to quiet dissenting viewpoints. Now, why would a servant of Christ, do that. Why? I'll tell you why. Because a megachurch, by the virtue of its size, is forced, forced to operate more on a business model rather than as a church family. All right? And therefore, that demands that the style of leadership be more like a business model. And what do you see out in the business world as a style of leadership? Of course, you see the same thing. And so pastors that run like their church, like an executive would run a business, uh, are often more prone to, to lording over. Ancient shepherds did not drive their sheep like cowboys once did across the fruited plain. They didn't drive them like cattle. They led them. Sheep have to be led. And how do you do that? The shepherd doesn't lead from behind. He leads out in front and slowly but surely they follow. But it takes time. The shepherd led by example. Jesus did the same thing with the disciples. And he calls under shepherds and leaders of the church to imitate him and to follow him in humble obedience because what you do in essence is you lead others by yourself humbly following God. Now there is a, a worldly way to lead that's come into the church that produces much quicker results. And then there's the way that God calls to lead and it takes a lot longer. I mean, just look at your own life. How long has Jesus been leading you? You haven't dragged your feet along the way at all, have you? You always said yes the first time and put it into practice right away? I know you guys did that, right? He is so patient with us, the great shepherd. There's the style. You drive cattle, you lead sheep. Now Peter said to those who lead and shepherd God's flock faithfully and willingly and eagerly in his examples will receive a reward at Christ's return. Verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And the crown, of course, is an image uh, very well known to first century Greco-Roman world, especially in connection with the Olympic games in which the winner of a particular event, no matter what it was, was honored with a wreath of, of laurel leaves. I'm sure you've seen pictures of that before or seen it portrayed in movies. In the same way, the chief shepherd will reward faithful shepherds who finish their race and run it well. But unlike earthly crowns, unlike earthly rewards, this crown will never fade away. I can't imagine a reward lasting millions and millions and millions and millions of years and still feeling like a reward a million years down the road. But you know something? This concept of eternal rewards or crowds is is not limited to faithful shepherds. It's given to all faithful believers. Paul said over in Timothy, 2 Timothy, end of his life, he said this, I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And look at, and not only me, but also to all, say all, all, who have longed for his appearing people who are living their lives now not being so mindful about earthly things but keeping their hearts set on things above colossians 3 1 if you live a life like that certainly not perfectly but that is the mode of operation for you paul says here this crown is awaiting for you this reward is awaiting for you and again think about that a reward that never grows old I mean, if you were ever awarded for something in your life and you got maybe a statue or some type of plaque or whatever, it's there on the wall and you've never thought about it probably in the last 10 years. Or it's on the shelf, right? It's old old now. It reminds you of something in the past. Can you imagine a reward that's as fresh a million years down the road as the moment you first received it? That's what it's going to be like. James says something similar. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. After having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. And in addition to the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, there is also a crown that's called imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians 9 and the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2. The two things all of these crowns or rewards have in common is they are given for faithfulness in this life. And number two, they are not given in this life. They're given for faithfulness in this life, but the actual reward is after this life is over. In this life, we experience God's blessings, but those blessings are only a microscopic foretaste of the rewards in the next life. And what exactly those crowns are, we do not know for sure. But if the Lord's salvation is so great, what must the Lord's reward be like? When I think about it, just the thought of it compels me to live for Him. And undoubtedly, one day, we're gonna be surprised when we get to heaven, because we assumed that the greatest rewards go to those who did the greatest work. It's not the way the kingdom works. It doesn't work that way at all. That's not how the Lord rewards. He rewards on the basis of faithfulness to what he's called you to do. He rewards me on the basis of faithfulness, what he's called me to do. Everyone's got a different calling. Sometimes we look at somebody and, wow, they must have a great reward. Look at all they've done. Well, maybe they were given more responsibility than you. Were they as faithful as you, though? I think we're gonna be amazed. We're gonna get up to heaven. At least I am. I'm gonna look over there, and here's this guy who pastored 45 people in, you know, I don't know, whatever faraway city there is. and he's going to be loaded. I mean loaded. He's not going to be able to stand up. He's going to have so much crown on him. Because it's what? It's given on the basis of faithfulness. So what has God called you to do? Be faithful to it. Be faithful to that calling to serve your spouse. Be faithful to that calling to raise your kids in the way of the Lord. Be faithful of that calling to be Christ's representative in the marketplace. Be faithful to that calling of serving in the local church, volunteering. Be faithful at whatever you do. It's faithfulness that's rewarded. That's the whole idea behind the parable of the the talents. And we all want to hear that, don't we? One day, well done, thou good and faithful steward or servant. So anyway, after drawing attention to the humility that's required for elders through describing how they should lead. Now, Peter turns and speaks of the humility that's required by those that the elders lead, by those the shepherds lead. He says in verse 5, he says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your Elders. Now, when Peter uses the word elder here in verse 5, he's not talking about younger people and older people, and younger people should, should you know, respect older people. That's certainly a principle in Scripture, but he's not talking about that here. The subject is still the same. It hasn't switched from verse 1. Elders still means leaders in the church. He's still talking about the office of, of elders, and we know that because at the beginning of this verse, he says, in the same way. And so when he says in the same way, basically what I'm about to say relates to what I just got done saying. There's a connection there. Again, I know it's somewhat subtle, but Peter's been instructing elders and shepherds how to humbly lead. Now, in the same way means, in the same way that elders and shepherds are called to humbly humbly lead, those they lead are to humbly follow. Or it says, or submit to the oversight in the church. And the first group that Peter calls to humility here in the church is you who are younger, which is then followed by all of you. So he says, you who are younger, be humble. Then he says, all of you be humble. Now the question is, why do you have to single out the younger here? If you're saying everyone be humble, doesn't that include the younger also? And younger in Hebrew culture was anybody under 40. Generally speaking, so why does he do that? Well, we know this, generally speaking, not in every case, but generally, the younger you are, the more likely you are to push back against authority, or to be disappointed or disenfranchised with the misuse of authority, and there become spiritually unleadable. Now, the older you get, the more likely you are to see authority is not your enemy, and that the problem is not with authority it's with bad authority the problem's not with leadership it's with bad leadership and as you the older you get you begin to learn to discern the difference good leadership godly leadership is ordained by god for our good but wisdom teaches us even with good leadership we have to humble ourselves at times in order to be led And this humility, Peter goes on to say, is actually needed by everybody in every relationship within the body of Christ. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. All of you. And why, Peter? Well, because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So humble yourself. Since that's true, then... Apply, Peter making application, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. So the reason, again, for clothing, and that's the idea here, the word means just like you would put on a garment, put on humility, get humility, humble yourself, put it on like a garment. And the reason he says to do that is God is opposed opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the... The humble. It's a quote actually from Proverbs chapter 3, and uh, James also over in James chapter 4 quotes this same proverb. It seems to be kind of a a common, familiar statement in the early church God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And therefore, humility is not only needed for the church to function together in unity, it's also needed for individual believers to function in their relationship with God. It won't work without humility. Because why? You'll always be opposed by God. You're his child, you're loved, you have all the benefits of being a born again child of God, but you will be under the discipline of the Lord because God knows as long as you're in pride, you cannot receive his grace. And he so desperately wants you to receive his grace, that's why he sent his son to the cross to give you grace upon grace upon grace, John chapter one says. And if humility of pride is in the way, God will do anything to get that out of the way. Peter says, don't wait for that to happen. He says, humble yourselves. And if we're to have humility with each other in the church, we first must have humility before God. The idea here is the principle is that that the proud refuse to trust in God, but rather trust in themselves, in their own ability, in their own resources, They glory in their own ability and their resources. On the other hand, the humble realize that all their abilities and resources that they have fall infinitely short of acquiring what is truly needed by them in their heart. And they realize that the only place I'm going to get that is from God and therefore they put their trust in God and they glory in His ability and in His resources. And since God delights in that trust or that faith, He bestows grace, He pours out honor He bestows favor for that. Not only grace, obviously, to be saved, but grace for every day of our life. In fact, that verse says that he constantly or continually opposes the proud, but continually gives favor to the humble. There's a favor. There's a grace that God doesn't just every once in a while dump on you here and there and you recognize, ah, that was the favor of the Lord every minute of every day of every week, of every year as a believer. You are the recipient of God's grace in ways that you will never see until you get to heaven. He constantly is pouring out His grace upon you. Humility is what receives that grace. But you know, there's also a specific application here which I think is indicated in verse 7 where Peter says, cast all your anxiety on Him or your worries on Him for he, He cares for you. Now, Peter here, he's not, he's not reproving his readers for a pride that rejects God's care, but rather a pride that doubts God's care and therefore gives way to anxiety and worry. And that would not be difficult if you considered their present circumstances. I mean, I'm sure they're thinking in their minds, are we going to be able to survive what's going to come, what we see coming around the bend? Are we still going to be allowed to meet together and worship? Will, will we lose our homes? Will we be displaced? Will we lose our livelihood? Will we lose our freedom? What's going to happen in our future? And what about our children's future? I mean, all these things are probably in, in their thinking. And so Peter says to them, he says this, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. Now, I know in the NIV, that's a new sentence. It says, Cast all your anxiety upon him. But in the original text, it is one sentence. In other words, the way you humble yourself is by casting all your worry, all your care on the Lord. That implies that if we continue to worry and be anxious, that we're actually caving into pride. But how is worry a form of pride, you ask? Well, worry is a form of pride because when we're filled with worry, we are convinced that we must solve all of our problems. That's what worry is. Worry is you running, is the delusion that you can solve all your problems and meet all your needs in the face of something that's absolutely insurmountable. Worry is the feeling that you have when you hit that wall. When we worry, we're unintentionally, we don't mean to do this, but we're unintentionally taking the place of God in our lives because we are all really, in the sense, trusting ourselves. We're becoming our own God. We're trying to be the mighty hand that lifts us up instead of allowing the Lord's mighty hand to lift us up. On the other hand, when we acknowledge God's mighty hand to take care of us, By casting our cares, our worries, our anxieties upon Him, we are expressing our faith in Him to take care of us, to lift us up. We truly believe that He does care for us. You know, I think when Peter wrote this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he might even had in the back of his mind some words of Jesus that sound very similar. It was from his first sermon, called the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. That pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? Then he qualifies that what you will eat or drink. Of course, in the ancient world, those were not in the abundance that they are in our world today. You were one growing season away from famine. But he says here, don't don't worry about what you'll eat or drink or about your body or about what you'll wear. They didn't have closets full of clothes. Usually one change. And it costs a lot. And you couldn't afford a lot of clothes. He says, but don't worry. And clothes wore out. He said, but don't worry. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Then he said, can you see them? <laughs> Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then comes the question, are you not much more valuable than they? I mean, Do you know what he's saying here? Do you not realize how much your Father cares for you? Cast all your care upon him for he cares for you. So he says down verse three, so don't worry in saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, those that don't have faith, run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Notice that, he knows. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry, seek first. Don't worry, cast all your care upon the Lord because he cares for you and for me. Seek first the kingdom. And you seek first the kingdom by seeking first the king of the kingdom. He's a unique king, for sure. Because he's not only the king over all the universe, he is the the shepherd who cares for us. And more importantly, in John 10, the shepherd who lays down his life for us. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he was talking there about what he was going to do, what we know he has done. Give His life on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He died there in our place. Our sin deserved the penalty, but perfect Jesus died in our place, took our penalty, and rose from the dead. And when the Bible says that when we do that, we're forgiven all of our sins. Not only the past, not only the ones we just committed, but the price has been paid for all the future sins too, all sin. And not only is our sin forgiven, but we're also made right with God. We're given a standing before God. The the life that Jesus lived, the merits of His perfectly lived life, become ours as a free gift. That's called righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He who knew no sin, Jesus, was made to be sin for us on the cross, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him that we would have that access that we celebrated this morning with the bread and, and the cup. He is the good shepherd. He laid down his life for the sheep and he rose from the dead. And ever since then, he's been calling wandering sheep into his flock. Everyone in this room this morning knows what that's like or knows right now what that's like. There was a certain point in your life where you stopped wandering and you came home to the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. Maybe you haven't gotten to that place yet. But maybe this morning you are. Jesus died for you because he loves you within it. You'll never find anybody to love you more than Jesus. You'll never find it. And with Christ comes the joy and the peace that this world cannot give you that nothing in this world that no relationship no earthly award no earthly achievement no status can never give you a joy and peace that comes from him that the world cannot give if you've never trusted in Christ there is a moment in which you do that you don't get it by osmosis like you're in a church you don't get it that way here's where you hear what you need to hear but there's a moment when you believe there's a moment of faith, I believe that Christ died for my sins I'd like to if you've never confessed that if you've never believed I'd like to lead you in a confession of faith this morning kind of a confession and prayer both if you've never believed and you want to trust Christ this morning for the forgiveness of sin for your eternal life let's say this together I believe in Jesus Christ and that He died on the cross for my sin, and He rose from the dead. I'm a child of God by faith in Christ Jesus. I repent of my sin. I turn to Christ all the days of my life. From now and evermore, I am His. great shepherd of the sheep, I thank you this morning for your word. I pray, Lord God, that the truth would resonate within us in in individual ways for every one of us in the room, that the Holy Spirit would apply exactly what we need from your truth today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,